0: Well now in this session we are going to uh, launch into the Songs of Ascent and so I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 120, 120, which you'll find on page 637 of the Church Bibles. And in this session we're going to look at the three Psalms that run 120 to 122. And I will explain as I go along my method, but uh, we'll be focusing mainly on 121. Now, the psalms in this unit are all known, as you will see, as a song of ascents. You see that uh, just after the uh, heading of the psalm, 120, 121, 122, and so on. And that means that uh, they had, of course, a variety of um, authors. Uh, You'll see that 122 says of David... Maybe David wrote more than we know, but uh, certainly he is the author of that one, and Solomon is the author of 127, uh, and again David in 124, 131. So a variety of authors, and probably from different periods, but gathered together for a specific purpose. And the purpose is ascent, or going up. And uh, you will know that the, uh, the going up is the going up to Jerusalem. So it seems that these were songs which pilgrims would sing as they made their way to Jerusalem from uh, around the whole of uh, Israel and further afield for one of the great festivals. God, of course, called them to Jerusalem uh, for the temple festivals, uh, Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles, and three times a year they would be uh, encouraged to travel to Jerusalem as the worshipping nation, community of God's people. So, uh, of course, not everybody went three times a year, but I guess every devout Jew would want to go at least once a year to one of those festivals. So many, many people would be traveling. They would be ascending Jerusalem up there in the hills, and therefore uh, you are going up to the city of uh, Jerusalem where the Lord's temple is placed, where the Lord's people meet. Now, it seems to me that that is the most likely meaning of Song of Ascents, but I have to say that some scholars have tried to find other meanings. Um, One intriguing idea is that the Psalms all have an upward movement in them, rather like climbing steps. So if you look at Psalm 121, for example, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So help, help. It's as though you move up a, a ratchet, you go up a step. Or verse 3 of the same psalm. He will not let your foot slip, he who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Again, a sort of ratcheting up a, a, a progress. It works occasionally in some of them, but it's not really, I think, uh, it doesn't really work all the way through. Much better, I think, to see these as songs of pilgrimage used on the way to those great annual festivals And certainly Psalm 120, with which we're going to start, starts us off a long way from Jerusalem. So let's read Psalm 120. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, Meshek is on the northern shores of the Caspian Sea, right up in the north, as far as you might be scattered as a Jew. And Kedar is right in the South Arabian Desert. So Meshech is far north and Kedar is far south. Obviously, the psalmist couldn't live in both places at the same time. So it's symbolic when he says, Woe to me that I dwell, that I live. It's symbolic of anybody who's not in Jerusalem. Anybody who is, as it were, separated from the center of the worship of the Lord and from the city which David uh, conquered and dedicated to him. Now, Let's then think just for a moment about methodology. If these are songs that physical pilgrims take as they progress to Jerusalem, are they songs that we should sing in our SUVs as we drive into church on Sunday morning? <laughs> Probably not. Oh, uh, well, I mean, you can, of course, it do you good, but I mean, it's not for that purpose that they're given, is it? Because... As I said in the first session, the physical is transformed into the spiritual. The location of the land of Israel becomes the people of God throughout the world. But, of course, the imagery of the progress to the promised land, which you get in Exodus, the redemption that sets you off on pilgrimage that will bring you to the land that God has promised, is an imagery that threads its way all the way through Scripture and becomes an imagery of the Christian life. So that we too are being stirred up by God to a deeper recognition of him, a deeper relationship with him, which is why the pilgrims went to Jerusalem. And as we make that progress through our lives, deepening our fellowship with God, our knowledge and love of him, we also are moving towards the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So I don't think it's at all fanciful to see that the Psalms threading now into our 21st century world take us from the difficulties of the present into the presence of the Lord and they become representative of a believer's pilgrimage. Now, of course, on the pilgrimage, all sorts of things happen. So these Psalms give to us instruction about how to deal with everyday life situations as we press on to our New Jerusalem. And they are full of practical help and instruction on the life of faith because the pilgrimage is commanded by God. He's calling his people into his presence. And so the difficulties that they and we encounter are the fruits of faith and obedience. Now, that's a very important point at the beginning. These guys who went through difficulties on the way were being obedient to God. That shows us, of course, that... uh, It is not a sign that everything has gone wrong for us spiritually when we get into difficulties. Every pilgrim experiences difficulties on the way to God. We all experience opposition, loss, sorrow, disappointments. And sometimes as Christians we think, well, how did I get it so wrong? Why is God not interested in me? Has he turned his back on me? Not at all. The pilgrimage is fraught with difficulties. But the difficulties are what Drive you to God. And we shall see that coming through very clearly. Now it was the Old Testament scholar under whom I studied, Dr. Alec Mateer, who uh, first suggested uh, to me anyway and to a number of other people in one of his um, presentations that the songs can be taken in units of three because each of these units is a miniature of that sort of progression from where we are into a deeper understanding of God. Each one represents different facets of the climb. So that's going to be my method in these remaining sessions, to take uh, an overall view of the three Psalms, to achieve their perspective uh, on our pilgrimage, and then to try to use the zoom lens to bring one of the three into sharper focus so that we can learn its lessons in greater depth. Let's look firstly then at the big picture in these three Psalms, 120 to 122. We start in 120 in distress. You see that in verse 1, I call on the Lord in my distress. And the distress is that he is isolated and alone in a hostile environment that is particularly characterized by lying speech, deceitful tongues, lying lips. He longs to be in the environment of God's presence. He wants to be a man of peace, but he's surrounded by war. And uh, symbolically, as we said in verse 5, he is very remote from Jerusalem. Now look at Psalm 122 and verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May there be peace within your walls. Uh, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Why is his focus now on Jerusalem? Well, look at verse 2. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So we've moved from Meshech and Kedar, 120 verse 5, to the gates of Jerusalem, 122 verse 2. And that, you see, is the metaphor of the pilgrimage. In between is the climb. And that is the pattern that we need to grasp. Out of the world, through the pilgrimage, into the holy city. And all because God has called us and God has commanded us. We've accepted the royal invitation. Now I chose the title Songs for Climbers because all around us in our culture there are climbers, aren't there? We are by nature climbing people. It's a good thing, really. It gives us ambition, focus, energy to do things. It's the normal human condition that we want to be climbing There are social climbers, there are career climbers, there are financial climbers, there are status-seeking climbers, there are academic climbers. All sorts of people are climbing all sorts of ladders. But of course the difference for Christianity is that you don't climb your ladder to God. God comes down the ladder to rescue you. And then he says, now I want you to join the pilgrimage to my eternal kingdom, to my heavenly city. So this is not that we're climbing up and trying to be good enough for God. Let's get that out of our minds to start with. Nobody can be good enough for God. So every ladder that we might climb to get us to God is going to fall short. Because God is perfection. And you and I know that we're far, far short of what we'd love to be. So we're never going to have a ladder that we can get ourselves up to God by religious devotion or by commitment to good works or by any of those things. The glory of the Christian faith is that God has come down the ladder to us and that is unique in world religion. Every religion in the world will tell you a ladder to climb but Christianity says there's no ladder to God, he's come and rescued you. Hallelujah, that is what it's all about. So if God has come down the ladder to rescue us, he says, but nevertheless, there is a climb to the heavenly city. And I want to be with you on that. I want to grow you through that. I want to discipline you by that. I want to enlarge your heart through that. And it is climbing, as it were, in that assurance into what God has already provided for us in Jesus, that we can pick up these Psalms and find so much help. Because we are living in the real world, of course we are, that's absolutely right. Christianity is not an invitation to get out of the real world into some fantasy environment. We live in the real world, but we live as citizens of heaven. And therefore our horizon is what is conditioning our journey. And of course that's true of other people too. You remember those bumper stickers that they used to be, I haven't seen some for some time, but maybe they're still around, I'd rather be, I'd rather be windsurfing. I'd rather be um, uh, golfing or whatever it was. Well, I'd rather be in the New Jerusalem, is what the Christian would say. Because to depart and be with Christ is better by far. But that doesn't mean that we're about to commit suicide. It means, of course, that God has put us in this world to enjoy it. He gives us all things richly to enjoy, Paul says. To live in it as his citizens, to work for him in all that he gives us in this world. But there's an inner set of priorities that motivates us. And everything has to be put in that perspective. We are citizens on our way home. We are pilgrims going to a heavenly country. So now let's start where we are, back in Psalm 120. Here is the now of our Christian experience. Because there is often a sense, isn't there, of us not fitting into this world? Um, I'm not saying that we should cultivate being bizarre people. There are some Christians who seem to think that's what they're called to do. To be, I'm a weirdo for Jesus sort of thing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that if you are a Christian, there will be many times when you don't fit. Many times. When there's a feeling of restlessness, of being ill at ease. When you feel that you're so beset by people who tell you lies all the time. I find that very much in our country. I mean, during my lifetime, I think truth has been a great casualty in Britain. You can't trust anybody's word any longer. You used to be able to. But as the Christian heritage has eroded, we're just told lies all the time. By governments, by media, by people you meet, just become endemic. And, of course, you do feel that. Woe that I live in that sort of context. Now, of course, none of us is immune from sinning in that way. But there is often a sense in which, as Christian people, we long for that better country. We want something something better. It grieves us that there is no truth-telling. And that comes out in verse 5. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech. I want to be in a better environment. Uh, And notice the verbs, because um, he's not at home there. The verbs indicate a temporary stay, a sort of overnight guest. That's what he is in Meshech. He's living among the tents, uh, the Bedouin people of uh, southern Arabia, but they're always picking up their tents and moving on. It's a sort of bed and breakfast situation. The geography is not important, though. What he's saying is, and the Hebrew poetry characteristically takes the north and the south and includes everything in between, He's saying, I have a deep longing in my heart for the kingdom of God, for truth and reality, for what I know is in the presence of the Lord. Now, if you feel like that, that's a good sign. That is an indication of God's work in your life. But there's also a sense of hostility directed against him. It's not just that there are lies all around him, but um, that those lies are very threatening. Um, The deceitful tongue has to be punished by God. He's assured that there will be eventually a judgment of God on these things. But you see, he's wanting to live a life of peace. And the lying environment in verse 6 and 7 speaks about people who are all about war. Well, that is where we are in varying degrees and in varying ways in our lives here in this world now. What do you do as a pilgrim? Don't forget the first five words. I call on the Lord. So if we recognize that our roots are not here, if we can still sing that old gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a traveling through. We live in the world, but not as citizens of the world. But in our distress, when we feel the pressure of the world, as we will, we call upon the Lord. That's the distinctive mark of the pilgrim. So I want you to see that the sequence begins not with the difficulties, but with God. And the only way to live in a hostile world, and you soon experience its hostility when you make a stand for what is right, the only way to live in a hostile world is constant contact with God, pouring out your heart to him. I call on the Lord in my distress. Now last night I was taken to see Prince Caspian, and I don't want to spoil the film for you if you haven't seen it already. It's a very good film. But one of the interesting things that came out of it was that the prince and uh, the other children who had been in Narnia were trying to fight the battle against their enemies. Uh, Without Aslan didn't seem to be around, Aslan hadn't turned up, and they didn't seem to want to have to ask him. They were saying, we've got to fight this battle themselves, and of course they came to pretty instant defeat. There's a great spiritual message in this film. And they are eventually rebuked by Aslan, very graciously, because they didn't come to ask him for help. And so many Christians need that rebuke, don't we? I call on the Lord in my distress. Why? He answers me. If you want the help, you've got to do the calling. Somehow we sort of think we ought not to do that. Somehow we sort of think, I ought to be a strong enough Christian now after all these years, not to need to rely on the Lord so much. That is a nonsense, absolute nonsense. No, I've got to call upon him in my distress. A lady once came to me with a whole set of problems, and I said to her, she was a Christian lady, lovely lady, and I said, look, when you're praying about these oh, no, I don't pray about them. You don't pray about them. Oh, well, the good Lord has far too much to do governing the universe than to be bothered with my problems. Now, that sounds at one level very pious, but it's totally unbelieving, totally unbelieving. I call upon the Lord in my distress. And whatever that distress is and however the world impacts us with its hostility and its evil, that's what we've got to do. Now, Psalm 120, then, is about the now. Psalm 122 provides a wonderfully motivational picture of the not yet, the reality of the Jerusalem that awaits us, the goal of our faith which makes the climb... Such an exciting and joyful thing. Verse 1, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now he says, our feet are actually standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Now as they were singing this, going up to Jerusalem, of course they weren't standing in the gates, but they're anticipating it, they're looking forward to it. They're saying, this is where we're going to be. God has called us, he's going to bring us, and what a joy it will be to arrive because... Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That's where the tribes go up, verse four, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. See, here are the certainties that keep you climbing. Um, Instead of the aloneness of Meshech and Kedar, there is the fellowship of verse 3. It's a city closely compacted together, inhabited by your brothers and your sisters who worship the same God. Our feet, plural, are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So it's a city of unity that's uh, no longer like a Bedouin tent encampment. It's a city... Which is stable, which is uh, lasting, where the statutes of the Lord rule and bring harmony to all the dwellers. And so instead of the deceits and lies of 120, there's life under the authority of God's revealed word. Because it's a city where the Davidic king reigns. There are thrones of righteousness for right decisions and for judgments that prevail. True decisions that are made where everything is put right. So it's a city of peace. I'm for peace, but they're for war, 120. May there be peace within your walls, 122. Security. For the sake of my brothers and friends, the community of God, I will say peace be within you. And that peace means that there's harmony and that there is prosperity, verse 9. I will seek your well-being. Now that's all that the man of peace in 120 is longing for. And he sees it in Jerusalem. This is home. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's the house of the Lord our God. That's where we really belong. And that's where we're really going. And what a joy it is to know that. You will know the story of John Newton, whose bicentenary was celebrated last year, the slave trade captain who became a wonderful gospel preacher and uh, who died 200 years ago in 1807. He had a great ministry in the city of London and he had a great ministry also as a hymn writer and though you may not know much of his biographical detail, I'm sure you've sung many of his hymns, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound and so on. And in his hymn um, about the city of God, Glorious Things of Thee are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God, there is a stanza that runs like this, Saviour, since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Isn't that magnificent? That's the point, you see. This city is eternal. And friends, we'll never keep climbing unless we have the destination clear. Got to have that far horizon clear. And that hope of heaven is such a strong motivator to life in this world. Now, people say to me, oh, you know, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly use. And I say to, you, to them, no, look, the problem with the church is that it is so earthly minded that it has little use for heaven now we're going to heaven we're going to an eternal kingdom and we need to have that clearly focused, the more heavenly minded are you are, the more use you will be on earth, now I know it's possible to be sort of so heavenly minded that you're detached and you live in an ethereal ante room and you don't connect with people, but if you're living in the real world with a heavenly mind you're going to be a great blessing to the world because you're going to show people that there is another dimension An eternal dimension. And it's important to be ready for that. We live in a culture that uh, just values the journey. Do you you know all this Christian stuff? I suspect you have books all about the journey. It doesn't matter where the journey is going. It's just the journey that matters. It's the experience of the journey. Robert Louis Stevenson, the British novelist, once said, it is better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. Whether he was sitting on one of British Railway's trains at the time, I'm not really quite sure... (laughs) They were trying to prove the other day that their trains all arrive much better on time now. You know we've had terrible problems with our railways. And uh, if you've ever experienced the British Railways, you probably won't want to again. But they are getting better. But uh, there's a big station in London called Waterloo Station, and they had a board of the percentage of trains that arrived on time. They had 100 trains on this board, red trains and black trains. The red trains all arrived on time and the black trains didn't. And uh was something like 90 red trains and 10 black trains because they were doing really well. But some wag had written on the board I saw in a felt tip pen, why do I always get a black one? <laughs> Which I thought was a great comment. <laughs> you know, um, journeying and waiting and impatience and so on are part of our life here, aren't they? But this journey is not the journey in itself. It's worth making the journey because of the destination. And, of course, that's why we do make journeys. Robert Louis Stevenson was wrong, I think, when he said it's better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. Uh, It's much better to arrive if you're arriving in a place you want to be with people you want to be. That's why heaven motivates us. So it's not just a a gloomy um, view of life in this world and, oh, dear, I hope one day I might get to heaven. Nor is it just a glossy picture of the most wonderful holiday destination, but it's unattainable. I'd love to go there, but I can't afford it. No, it is a vision of who God is, for where Jesus is, that is where heaven is. And it is really a wonderful place, as the children's song says. Uh, And we come to it from all over the world, from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds and all sorts of experiences of life we have come to Mount Zion. And so Psalm 122, while it is the not yet in experience, is the now in our hearts. We long to be there. That is where the tribes of the Lord go, to praise the name of the Lord. And please don't think about heaven as being endless sort of uh, singing. Um, some people I know, especially men, are put off heaven because they think it's going to be singing all the time. Um <laughs> There was a son of Winston Churchill called Lord Boothby, Lord Robert Boothby, who was a politician like his father. And he wrote a little book once, What I Believe. And in it, he sadly said he didn't believe in Christian truth, really. And he didn't believe in heaven. And he said he didn't believe in heaven because the picture of a spiritual Boothby sitting on a spiritual cloud, twanging a spiritual harp for eternity, had limited attractions. Well, it's tragic that he thought that's what he was turning down. Now, in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, God's servants will serve him. There will, of course, be constant rejoicing and praise. But we don't need to think of heaven as that. It's not like uh, sort of permanent inactivity except for gospel songs. Uh, It is that all of our being is alive with God, and in new heavens and a new earth, that great new environment of the last two chapters of the Bible, there will be an immense amount of work to be done in God's strength and for God's glory. But, you may say, how do I know that I will actually make it to Zion? So let me focus our last ten minutes or so on Psalm 121. sure you will love this psalm. Many of you may know it by heart. It is a wonderful treasure. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is a psalm you see for the journey. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Now, here's the zoom lens, you see. This is on the climb. 120, that's where I am and I long to be somewhere else. 122, that's where I'm going. 121, how am I going to do it? And the question in verse 1 is, how do I know that I shall actually make it to Zion, to Jerusalem? Here I am in Meshech or in Kedar, who will see me home to Jerusalem? How will I really get there? Now, I think that's the point of verse 1, I lift my eyes to the hills. There are Christian songs which take that as meaning, well, we have one at home in Britain that says, I lift my eyes to the quiet hills in the press of a busy day. As green hills stand in a dusty land, so God is my strength and stay. It's a lovely song and I like it because it's true about God but it's not what Psalm 121 verse 1 means you don't look to the green hills of England uh, in order to find comfort for your eyes and your heart when the pilgrim looked to the hills the hills are a picture of all that threatens you on your way to Jerusalem you've got to go through those hills and the hills are not a picture of refreshment they represent the perils of the pilgrimage the dangers the weariness, the climb itself that lies between me and Zion. So that question is a real question. Where does my help come from to get me through the hills? You see? And if you're facing certain hilly experience in your life today, then please listen in, because this is what you need to keep you climbing. And if you're not facing it, put this in the freezer and keep it for a day when you do. Then defrost it and take it into your life. Now the psalmist's eyes are on the hills, but they don't stay on the hills. I lift up my eyes to the hills. You see, the hills will include robbers who are all waiting to ambush a caravan that's going to Jerusalem because it'll be quite a wealthy lot. uh, it'll, It'll have quite a lot of money. You've got to live there for a while, so the people are going to be carrying their money. They're going to be wearing their best clothes. You could ambush them and have quite a rich pickings. The hills may also contain wild animals that may attack you on the way. The hills are full of dangers of falling and slipping and breaking your leg. So the hills represent the difficulties. And that's what makes you say, so where am I going to get the help to get through this and make it to heaven in our terms? To really ensure that I will appear in Zion before God. Well, his eyes are on the Lord, aren't they? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Now, literally in the Hebrew, my help comes from with the Lord. That is to say, right out of his very presence. He has everything that I will ever need constantly available to me as I make my pilgrimage. So our pilgrimage is largely learning to live in a relationship of deep personal dependence on God. I'll say that again because I think it's so central. That's what God's doing in your life. And in my life, he's putting us through situations in which we learn to live in a relationship of deep personal dependence upon God. Because that is our only true strength. And that is where our true resources are found. Isn't that an amazing and wonderful thing to know? That as we trust him and obey him, God is with us and he is going to bring to us the help that we need at every position of need along the climb. So the motivation to do that comes from taking this word into our hearts. Are we really going to trust him this week? Are we really going to walk with him this day? Are we going to look to our help from the Lord rather than from all the other things we look to? Which can be anything from another cup of coffee to a Christian song to phoning up a friend now, they can be means of help, but they are not the ultimate help. The ultimate source of help is God Himself. So, what does the psalmist do to encourage us to do that? Well, let me suggest to you, he tells us three things about God. And this will help us to take this psalm before we break. First, He's the God who creates. Then, He's the God who protects. And thirdly, he's the God who accompanies. Let's just look at those. Firstly, he is the God who creates. My help comes from the Lord, verse 2, the maker of heaven and earth. Look beyond the hills to the creator. Look beyond the circumstances to the controller. Not just that he began it all and gave us life, but that he sustains it all by his powerful word, that he governs it all according to his sovereign power, and that he's guiding this world to its appointed end. Now that is a blessed thing to know as a Christian, that your life and this world are in the hands of a faithful creator, the maker of heaven and earth. And if you find that hard to believe, keep on reading the Old Testament. Keep on reading the book of Isaiah. Keep on reading the Psalms because that's where you'll find God revealed in all his splendor. Look at Jesus and his power over the created order as he stills the storm and raises the sick and even calls the dead to life. That is the God that we deal with, the maker of everything. And his care for us, his people, is built in to his government of the world that he made. He is the maker of heaven and earth. That means, you see, that you can't fall out of his care. You can't fall out of his keeping. Didn't he provide water from the rock for his people in the desert? Didn't he provide the manna day by day? Isn't he the God who comes to deliver them from all their enemies? Yes, the Bible's full of stories about the God who creates, who's committed to what he has created. And who is therefore, secondly, the God who protects. Verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, did you notice in those two verses, there's an interesting movement from you, singular, it is singular in verse three. He will not let your individual foot slip to Israel in verse four, the collective. And the introduction of the word Israel reminds us how central pilgrimage is to our lifestyle. Why did God redeem Israel from Egypt? To bring them into relationship with himself and to bring them to the land. And their pilgrim status was defined by that act of redemption. So with the New Testament Israel, the church of God grafted into Christ who is the true vine, he is taking us equally on the way to that eternal inheritance. And he's not going to lose us on the way. See, that's the point about he will not let your foot slip. He watches over you. He will not slumber. He is neither asleep nor indifferent. It's so good to know that, isn't it? That the circumstances of your life are known to God. He's in control of them. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He is not going off duty. He's not going to have his back turned. So that when you cry out to him from the from Meshek and the tents of Kedar in your distress, you do not get a message saying, Your telephone call is very important to us. We would ask you to wait. No, no, God is not like that, you see. He is this gracious God who will not let you go and will not let you down. Don't judge God by what you see in the world around. He is magnificently different from everything that is human in that sense. He made us in his image, but he is far beyond us in his grace and mercy and power. We've got to have a big view of a big God. And yes, we may face crises and adverse circumstances. In our own family, if I may be personal for a moment, our first little grandson was diagnosed with a cancer on his liver at five months. And when that happens in a family, it's a big testing time. But this God whom we're talking about is more than able to deal with that. He, of course, is not taken by surprise. He knows it's under his sovereign authority and to see my daughter and her husband grow in their Christian faith and trust and flourish under this as God graciously met with them. And in his mercy, uh, it was dealt with medically, and he seems to be fine now, we're rejoicing in that, but he's in God's hands. But we've all got experiences like that. We can all look at things like that in our lives. See, this is real. He doesn't let your foot slip. Oh, yes, it judders you for a while, and you think, Lord, why is this happening? But... He doesn't allow you to be crippled by it. He keeps you climbing. He keeps you trusting. He keeps coming alongside you because the God who protects is the God who accompanies. And this is the last point in verses 5 to 8. You see, it's not just that there is a sort of protection mechanism that operates impersonally. Uh, As a Christian, you have to access that by faith and by prayer. You have to ask the Lord to be God to you. Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't see where this is going or what it's going to lead to. From my point of view, this is not what I want in my life. But I know that you will not let my foot slip. I know that you're watching over me. You're not asleep. You haven't turned your back. When I was a young minister, uh, a lady um, lost her little, well, didn't lose her. The child was very badly injured. Right outside their house by a car, little child of about seven or eight, Uh, and this car ran into the child and the child was very badly injured and I always remember this distraught mother saying to me where was God when my child was run down now obviously what she's thinking is did he have his back turned because he's not a God worth believing in is he he turns his back when my kid is being run down how can I believe in him what you have to say to her is his back was not turned that doesn't mean that he engineered it But it means that in his sovereignty and in his providence, he is going to use it. And he knows all about it. It's not that he's turned off his affection for you or that he has somehow gone off duty or that he was asleep at that moment. Nothing happens apart from the sovereign providence of this gracious God. Well, you may want to ask some questions about that. But let's just spend the last five minutes on verses five to eight because he is the God who accompanies us. Now, these are wonderful verses to live on. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. That's on the pilgrimage as you're making your way through those hills where you could slip, where you could be overcome. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. That, of course, is one of the threats that uh, the heat of the sun and the uh, thirst that it induces could be life threatening. But at your right hand, which is the picture of nearness, that's why Jesus is at the right hand of God, There is never a situation where he's too busy, where he isn't at hand. In fact, verse 6 says, The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. And that again is poetically saying, you see, any time, whether it's in daylight or at night, he stands between us and all the threats to our well-being on the climb. The sun and the moon speak of the totality of time. But they also speak of dangers seen and unseen. Sometimes you see the dangers in the daylight. Sometimes at night you're beset by all sorts of imaginary dangers, aren't you? Do you know the 3am what-if syndrome stuff? So whether it's the sun or whether it's the moon, whether it's the day or whether it's the night, whether it's exhaustion or robbers or wild beasts or whatever it may be, he is our constant companion. Of power and love. He will not let it happen. The Lord watches over you. What is it he will do then? Now you must be very careful with verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Doesn't mean to say the Lord will keep you from all problems. Doesn't say the Lord will keep you from all challenges. Or from all adverse circumstances. But he will not let them harm you. In the sense of threatening your. Now the word for life there is nefesh. In the Hebrew, which means the soul, the real you. He will not let you be consumed by these dangers and problems and difficulties. You see, verse 7 and 8 are actually the most comprehensive coverage imaginable. We have a TV advertisement in uh, Britain for an insurance company which says, Get the strength of the insurance company around you. Well, that may be quite useful in this world. But um, what this is saying is get the strength of the promises of God around you. Never mind the insurance company. Because he will keep you from all harm. That is everything that threatens your life, your nefesh, your spiritual new life that he's given you. He will not allow that to be quenched. The nefesh is the totality of the person viewed from the center outwards. So if he keeps your nefesh, he'll keep the real you. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? That you could not possibly be more precious to him than you are. And he's never going to let you down. And wh- what, what does that mean? Verse 8. It means that he'll watch over your ways. your coming and your going. For now and evermore. It's so comprehensive, isn't it? Coming and going could talk about birth and death. Morning and evening. Youth. Old age. Going out of the house. Coming back to the house. All sorts of Dimensions of that. But whatever you're doing, whether you're coming or going, the Lord will watch over you. And He's not just observing, He's keeping. That's the whole point, you see. His watchfulness is to protect and to accompany and to strengthen. And then it says, both now and forevermore. That is, for all time. It begins now, 1223, May the 17th. Well, it doesn't begin now because it's never, of course, not been there but let's say i see this verse for the first time now today it's going to be true in one minute's time and it's going to be true through eternity there is never a time when this will cease to be true both now and forevermore and we just need to let that sink into us we need to luxuriate in the reality of what it is to be God's people, what privileged people we really are. And if that isn't enough to keep us climbing, I don't know what is. Let's pray.